The following audio is from a sermon series from Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the reading of God's word from the book of 1 Corinthians, verses 10 through 17. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize you, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So before I jump into the word this morning, let's go ahead and pray. Father, um, I can do nothing good on my own. Uh, I can do nothing good in my own strength. Um, I am a sinful man who struggles to um, obey your word, to str- who struggles to understand your word, who struggles to be um, a husband and a father and a pastor and just a man. So I, I'm very aware that I uh, have no strength in myself to um, be a philosopher or a theologian or just a, a man who has it all together up here. Um, And I don't pretend to be, but I ask as a man who's dependent upon your spirit, I ask for your spirit to speak through me. I ask for your spirit to illuminate my mind as um, I study the scriptures and I proclaim the scriptures and that you would speak through me this morning, that you would help me declare truth um, from error. And Father, you would anoint my mind to think and my mouth to preach and you anoint our ears to hear and to respond to your word. That we believe this is um, word, the word of God and that we need to respond to it. So would you be here? Would you be present with us today as we study your word for your glory and for our joy? In Jesus' name, amen. A little bit of a tickle in my throat this morning. Um, so, welcome to Sacred City. We are working through the book of 1 Corinthians. That's what we do. We don't really preach in topical series around here. We just work verse by verse through books of the Bible, hoping and praying and trusting God that His Word would come alive to you, that you would understand it in a new way, that we wouldn't avoid uh, maybe pockets of scriptures that are really difficult for us or that uh, maybe we don't understand, but we would really press into those and see what God has for us. Scripture does tell us that all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for making disciples. All scripture is good for our heart. All scripture is good for us. So today we're going to jump right in. You saw, uh, as we read, we are in, uh, we're going to do seven more verses today. So chapter one, verses 10 through 17. And we're basically just jumping in a little bit in further into the book of 1 Corinthians. And here's what's unique. 
Um, we are now going to get into the body of the letter. For the last two weeks, we just covered the introduction. Now we're going to get into the body of the letter. And right away, Paul is going to start addressing one of the underlying problems in the church of Corinth. All right? You can see we are entitled this series, Following Jesus in a Jacked Up Church. Because 1 Corinthians is the most jacked up church in all the New Testament. Okay? And right away now, Paul's going to launch into one of their major problems. Okay. And here, here, here it is. And this is over 2000, this is over 2000 years ago, right? So, um, more than likely this problem is not going to be, it's not gonna be relevant to you because we've evolved since then. And we, our society is just progressively getting better and better and better and better as we get more educated. And as we come to understand, you know, the nature of our species and everything, we're just getting better and better and better and better. So none of this is probably, I'm probably just teaching an archaic 2000 years ago, people, when they were uneducated and they weren't cultured, this is what they struggled with. Okay. So I, I'm sorry if it just doesn't resonate with you today. Um, but the problem in this church was divisiveness. See, the problem in this church was they had been split up kind of in different factions or maybe different sects around some influential leaders, right? The people weren't loving each other well. Um, they were kind of speaking over each other because they were rallying around these human leaders that they all liked to gather under. <laughs> See, they were all kind of divided over their own preferences. Now, I know we don't do that kind of thing in our society, like wear t-shirts with other people's names on them, or maybe, maybe we even divide under San Francisco and Seattle today, possibly, right? <laughs> Joking aside, maybe you've been a part of a church, and now if you've been a part of a church at all, you've been in this type of situation, right? That it's divisive, uh, it's, uh, they kind of, get under certain leaders and rally around those leaders. They don't love each other well. They, they want their preferences. I've heard of churches splitting over the color of the carpet. Churches divide. Churches break up. Churches split. And sometimes that gets really ugly. And many times that ends painfully. But before you, I just rail on all this, what, what we're going to see here is Paul is actually going to give us two reasons why churches divide. In this book. Okay. One is necessary. One is necessary. And one is not. Churches. Paul's going to show us that churches can divide basically over two reasons. Churches can divide over doctrine. And that's necessary. Or churches can divide over preferences. And that's ugly. And that's sin. And that's shameful. And in this section of scripture today. Paul is going to show us that when churches divide over preferences, it's awful and it's shameful and it's only possible when the church itself loses sight of the gospel. And specifically, when they lose sight of the cross. We're going to see that later. I'm going to get into it right away. I'm going to just lay this out there. Churches should not divide over preferences. But later on in the book, in chapter 11... In verse 19, Paul says that churches should divide over some things. He says, I've heard that there's divisions among you, and there should be to show who's right and who's wrong. Okay? Over doctrine. Now, what does that mean? 
This is how we say it at Sacred City. There's two types of issues. This is how we describe it. We think Paul gives us this um, principle here. And in other places, there's closed-handed issues and there's open-handed issues. Closed-handed issues, we will fight over, we will divide over. What are closed-handed issues? To make it really simple, I'll say closed-handed issues are anything that surrounds the theology of the cross. Jesus was the Son of God. If you want to say he was just a man, we're going to divide over that. Just a good teacher, we're going to divide over that. Jesus was the Son of God. If you want to, Jesus was also completely human. You want to say he wasn't completely human? We're going to divide over that. Why? Because that changes the nature of the cross. That changes the implications of the cross. The only reason the cross has meaning is because Jesus was fully human. He could take our place. He could represent us. Right? If we send people to the Olympics, you have to be from our country to represent us. Correct? doesn't matter if you're the strongest man in the world. We can't recruit you. You've got to be from our country to represent us. Jesus Christ had to be man to represent us on the cross. But he also had to be God because only God is free of sin. Only God could be resurrected. Right? So we're going to divide over those issues. Gospel issues, we're going to divide over if someone starts teaching something that's opposing scripture. Someone's going to teach a prosperity gospel. We will divide over those issues. We have to. We have to draw the line in the sand and say, this is true. This is the gospel. We're not going to bend to it. But what's in the open hand? In the open hand, Paul later on in this text, he's going to say, I came to preach the gospel to you, not baptize. What we're going to see is there's a first importance there. Paul's saying the gospel is, is primary. It's, it's what saves you. And baptism is a response to your salvation. So they're on different levels here. Okay, so baptism, we hold in an open hand. Not that you, ha- you should be baptized. Everyone should be baptized if they're a believer. But do you, want to, do, you ba- do you believe in baptizing children? We're going to see here in this text that the whole household of Stephanus gets baptized. Do you believe in children baptism or just believers baptism? Well, you know what? There's a lot of good theology on both sides of, the, of that issue. A lot of people on both sides of that issue. Scripture seems to be, you know, not, doesn't really come down really clear on that issue. So we're going to hold that in an open hand and be willing to disagree and be willing to not divide over it. Okay. Here's some other things we hold in an open hand, speaking in tongues, how the gifts are manifested in the church. We're going to hold those in an open hand. Okay. We're going to hold those in an open hand. There's a, so there's some things that we divide over that we have to, because they're crucial to salvation. They're crucial to the message of the cross. And there's some things that we're going to hold an open hand types of music. Some of you want some happy clappy, Jesus. Some of you want that kind of music, right? I don't. All right? There it is. We're not going to divide over it, though. We're not going to divide, right? There we go. There's a lot of things. Okay, not just that. Maybe the flow of the service, right? Maybe the tone of the preaching. There's a lot of different things that we hold in an open hand that, listen, these open-handed issues are mainly, not always, mainly preference. Preference. Right? So there's some things we divide over and there's some things we don't. But what we see is when we begin to divide church, when churches divide over preferences, when churches divide over open-handed issues, they show their own immaturity and ultimately their own self-centeredness. 
I need it my way. And if it's not my way, I'll go somewhere else. If it's not my way, we'll split the body of Christ. We'll split the church over preferences. And that is what we're going to see is exactly what's happening in the church in Corinth. They're dividing not over theology, not over doctrine. We don't have false teachers in the church declaring something to be false. And they're saying, that's wrong. Let's divide over that. They're dividing over their preferences. And we're going to see that. Let's jump right in here. And we're going to jump in actually into verse 11. We're going to skip verse 10. Then we're going to come back to it. So we're going to show you the problem and then kind of work back to how he addresses it. So let's look at verse 11. Chapter 1, verse 11. Open up your Bibles. 1 Corinthians. If you don't have a Bible, we've got one in the back for you. You can take it home. Chapter 1, verse 11. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Okay, now we can see a little bit what's going on here. The church has divided, they've created faction within itself around four different people. Paul, Apollos, Cephas, that's Peter, and Jesus. And let's take a closer look at that for a second. See, Paul, if you remember, he's the apostle who planted this church. He's the guy who made these disciples. He had spent a year and a half teaching them and training them and living with them and sharing his life with them and eating with them and walking with them. Right? He had been... He's opened up his life, shared life with them, teaching them the ways of Jesus. And then he moved on to Ephesus to plant more churches. Okay. Many people loved Paul. Paul, through Paul's proclamation, through Paul's discipleship, they came to Christ. He's like their spiritual father. So they loved him, right? That's good. People loved Paul. That's good. You should love your pastor. You should love him and buy him gift cards. Throw that out there. That wasn't in the text, but it's insinuated there, right? Paul had, but listen, Paul had a different type of ministry. Listen, Paul was, (laughs) Paul was brash. Paul spoke very directly. Paul made a lot of people really upset with his style of preaching. (laughs) So much so that he was always getting beat up. Paul was like the Rocky Balboa of gospel preachers. Right? Not that refined, but he had a great chin. He just kept getting back up. Right? A lot of people really hated Paul. They hated his style because it was very confrontational. He would go right up to, in the, right around where they worshiped idols, and he would just point it out, and he, would, he was smart, he was intelligent, but he was very upfront and aggressive. I like Paul. But many people did resonate with his style. It was very tough, but then he knew, he knew how to be tender too. So people really loved him. People really ra- rallied around him. And yeah, I'm, Paul baptized me. I'm, under, I'm, a Paul, I'm a disciple of Paul. They were proud about that. But then after Paul had left Corinth, this new guy came into town and his name was Apollos. Apollos was from Alexandria. According to Acts Uh, 24 to 19, verse 7, Apollos came from Alexandria in Egypt. And Alexandria in Egypt was the most respected and creative university city in all the Mediterranean. Okay? So Apollos, let's just say, Apollos was from the Harvard of his day. 
Unlike Paul, Paulos was a refined orator. He was an eloquent speaker and an intellectual. If Paul was the Rocky Balboa, Apollos was the Rhodes Scholar. So no doubt, when he got to Corinth and he started teaching, people were blown away. He's so smart. He's so deep. He's so much more refined and nuanced than Paul. See, Paul was educated, but he wasn't from Alexandria, so he had a completely different style of communicating than Apollos did. And many people loved Apollos' style. And that's okay, right? You should love your church leaders. You should love those who are preaching the gospel to you. It's okay that the people loved Apollos and loved... Some people resonated with Apollos' style more than they resonated with Paul's style. And then we also see this group forming around Peter. More than likely, this was the Jewish converts who were still struggling with the old Jewish laws. What can we eat? Who can we eat with? What can we do on the Sabbath? Etc., etc., etc. These guys were the 10-pound King James-only crowd. Right? They would be the group that struggles with legalism. They struggle with moralism. They were the ones who were really comfortable, as Jesus said, cleaning the outside of the cup and forgetting about the inside. They wanted rules. They wanted everyone to look a little more holy. So this, this kind of mentality is, we know you're not holy, but look like you are. Right? Parents, we know you do this, right? Your kid is disobedient, but when he's around certain people, you, you just want him to act like he's not, right? Just don't embarrass me. Just, so you give him the eyes or you do something, right? I remember when I was a kid in church and I would be screwing around with my buddies and I could feel the laser beams of my mom's eyes burning into my side of my head. And I would just kind of look over and I'd get it, right? And I knew what it meant. I knew what it meant. When I'm home, when I get home, I'm getting it, right? I'm getting it, right? That's the outward pressure to conform our behavior without changing our heart first. They wanted rules, everyone to look a little more holy, right? If Paul was rocky and Apollos was the Rhodes Scholar, Peter was the staunch conservative. Now, here's the deal. There's a danger here that we could think, man, Paul, Peter, Apollos, what are these guys doing? Why are they, why are these leaders gathering these people in this, these sects and these, why are they being divisive? But that's not what we're shown. That's not what the text is teaching us. That's what Paul is saying. We're not told that Apollos was bad and Paul was good. In fact, we're told that Apollos was a great guy in Acts 18. It says he was competent in the scriptures So here we see that the problem wasn't with Apollos or Paul. They hadn't divided the church. Their styles hadn't divided the church. We know that Peter was one of Jesus' closest followers, and he wasn't traveling to Corinth to divide the church over and against Paul or Apollos. No, the people were being divided because they were elevating their preferences, their own personal styles and proclivities over the others. And that, my friends, still happens today. 
right? Some people like my preaching. Some people don't. Some people like Dr. Schutz. Some people don't. Some people like Sam's. Some people don't. That's your preference. What's important is that we're all preaching the same gospel. We're all preaching the same doctrine, the same theology, the same cross. See, this sinful tendency that we all have, we all have it, is to elevate human leaders and their styles and their gifts over the gospel. We want to be united around a teacher or united under a leader instead of being united around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's sin. And that's shameful. And that's something we need to fight against. But we're going to see how Paul addresses it. But then, of course, there's some of us in here, right? Some people want to exalt people and exalt leaders and and, and get underneath this crowd. Or, yeah, I'm the reformed group or I'm the charismatic group or I'm under this leader and I'm under this leader. But then there's some of us that do something a little different, right? Lastly, there's this group who said, we don't need any leaders. We're led by Jesus, If the first three groups put too much emphasis on their leaders, this last group puts too little. And for me, this group is really sad. I've seen it in every church I've been a part of. I've heard so many people make statements like this. I don't need a pastor. I have Jesus. I don't need a missional community. I have Jesus. I don't need to read commentaries or scholars' opinions on the scripture. I have the Holy Spirit and a Bible. And what's so scary about these types of people is that all it is is just a a thinly veiled form of religious pride. Jesus is our great shepherd, but he appoints under shepherds for his church. He expects all of his sheep to be submitted to and in relationship with an under shepherd, an elder, a pastor. And for a person to say, I don't need a pastor, I don't follow anyone but Jesus, is to disobey the very Jesus they say they follow. And this is a form of pride that is invisible to their own eyes. And that's scary to me. That's scary. So church... Don't put me on a pedestal. I'm a sinner like you. Don't expect your missional community leader to be Jesus. They're not. But don't just dismiss church leadership either. Right? That, that's, a, that's the two sins. That's, the two er- that's how we fall off the horse on either side here. We either elevate our human leaders and we want to rally under them and we want to kind of lift them up like they're little Jesuses, like they're little Savior, or we say, ah, I don't need them. I go straight to the source. Paul's saying, don't overvalue it and don't undervalue it. But how do we do that? Listen, for me personally, I, I love Tim Keller's preaching pastor in New York city. He's a Presbyterian pastor in New York city. And I love his preaching and it's hard for me. Or I'm just gonna say, how do I thank God for him? How do I glorify God while listening to Tim Keller? Well, without exalting him to some kind of pedestal, like he's a guru, right? And I think Paul's going to teach us how to do that today. And I'm going to say this, this is kind of his prescription. We're going to see as we get into this text, he's going to say, and this is going to kind of be be weird at first, but I'm going to say, he says three things. 
You should say the same things with the same mind, with the same purpose. You should say the same things from the same mind, with the same purpose. That's what he's going to say. Now, that sounds real easy to do, right? Let's look and see how, what's this prescription? How, how can we do that? How can we be united? Let's look at verse 10. All right. You there? Stay there. Okay. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. All right. Right away here, this word appeal, it's like Paul is it's coming alongside, all right? It's the Greek word parakaleo. It literally means to come alongside and urge them strongly. That's what it means. So what Paul is about to do, he's going to show us what a good shepherd does, what a good leader does, what a good discipler does. We're all in the process of being discipled and we're all in the process of making disciples. This is what a good discipler does. They come alongside the people that they're discipling and they urge them to follow Jesus. They urge them to line up their life with the gospel. And that's what Paul does. He comes alongside, he puts his arm around him and he says, all right, I appeal to you. I'm strongly urging you to do this. This is what he's about to say. He's about to beg them to make some changes in their life. Make some changes in the way that they're living out and displaying the gospel in their church. He's doing this by coming alongside them, by speaking in the name of Jesus. He's making his appeal to them. Now, this is pretty cool. What does Paul say? I appeal to you, brothers, right? And that Greek word right there actually refers to siblings in a family. It's not just male, it's male and female. So he's actually saying, I appeal to you brothers and sisters. Now, who is he talking to? Paul's speaking to his spiritual kids. Paul's speaking to people that he brought into the faith, right? Through his preaching and through his declaration, through his life with them. He's calling them now brothers and sisters, Later on, it's pretty, this is funny because later on, Paul is going to go off on them and he's going to call them all spiritual babies, right? But here he's calling them brothers, brothers and sisters. Now listen, I just felt like I, I, when I was reading this, I was like, I was really intrigued because Paul, he's bringing this harsh letter of correction. And he, and the first thing he does is says, Hey, brothers and sisters, I, let me appeal to you. Now that is a whole lot better way of starting a letter of correction than hello morons, right? Because that's probably the stuff they're doing, the way their lives are, uh, the way their sin is, is kind of blowing up the church. That's probably how most of us would respond. Hello morons. Let me tell you how you're screwing up. But Paul comes alongside them and says, hey, brothers and sisters. And what we do, we, we see a lot of humility here in Paul. And I think we should all be challenged by it because Paul is more mature than they are. Correct. But we don't hear this like elevated position of Paul. We don't hear Paul speaking down on them. Right. We hear him saying brothers and sisters. He's level. For some reason, Paul doesn't feel like he's better than these Christians who are not living like Christians. Not, their lives aren't displaying the fruit of a Christ-centered life. And he's not looking down on them and saying, this should be, this should be. This. He's saying brothers and sisters. It's interesting. But let me tell you this. Neither is he just coming alongside of them than just saying, hey, let's just all hold hands and get along. 
he is coming alongside of them, but then he says he's making his appeal. He's bringing correction. And I think we struggle with both sides of that coin. Either we are truth speakers and truth tellers, and we want to tell people, this is where you're screwing up. This is where you're doing wrong. Stop that. We either or we err on the other side and we just put our arms around people and just say, ah, it ain't no big deal. It ain't no big deal. And Paul's not doing either of those things. Paul is walking with them, living with them, coming alongside them, while at the same time bringing some correction to them. <clears throat> this, he's not condoning it and he's not condemning them. He's confronting the sin in light of the gospel. And that's what a disciple of Jesus does. We come alongside those whom we're discipling. We walk with them while urging them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be conformed to the gospel. Now, if I could pull out and get a higher perspective on this, I would tell you this. And and I think next month I'm going to teach on this at missional community training. If you can, basically you can break scripture up into two forms. Okay, it's been said you can break it up into law and in gospel, okay, or in indicatives and imperatives. Now, that's the form. Now, let me explain to you what this is. The first 10 verses of Corinthians, Paul has not told them anything to do. When he tells you what to do, that's an imperative. That's a law. That's a command. He says, love one another. Later on in these verses, he's about to say, Say the same things with the same mind in the same purpose. That's a command. That's law. Okay? There's a lot of law in the Bible. Old Testament and New Testament. There's a lot of commands, a lot of law. Those are called imperatives. But here's what the, how the gospel changes the way we read the Bible. Paul starts this chapter off by giving nothing but indicatives. What are indicatives? Indicatives are things that are, are true because of what God has already done. So, for example, God has forgiven you. That's an indicative. There's no response required from you. There's no command. That is an indicative, something that God has done. That is gospel. That is a word of gospel. All right? Here... Paul has spent 10 verses reminding them of the indicatives. Listen, here's the indicatives Paul's already reminded them. He said, you are called by God. You have been made into sanctified saints in Christ Jesus. You have been given grace and peace by God through Jesus. You have been enriched in Jesus. You have been confirmed by Christ. You have been given spiritual gifts and they are being sustained until the end by Jesus. Those are all indicatives, things God has done for them in Christ. They have already been accomplished. That's all gospel. Those are all gospel words. Requiring no response from them. All right? Do you get that? That's gospel. That's an indicative. Now, because, listen, this is the gospel. This is how the gospel affects our heart and how the gospel affects change. Because those things have happened, because these indicatives are true, now he can give us law. Now he can give us commands. Because what God has already done, now we can live this way. Before the gospel was proclaimed, before Jesus Christ came and lived and died, all the law did was 
stack up a report card against us. God would say, what? Honor your father and mother, right? God would say, don't steal, don't lie, right? All the Ten Commandments and a bunch of other laws. And guess what? We were powerless to obey those. We did nothing but break those laws, correct? Right? But because of the work of Jesus, now God has called us. He's, changed, he's given us a new heart. We're sanctified saints. We have the spirit of God living in us. We've been adopted into the family. We've been cho- Because of all these things, we have now got a new heart to obey. Because these indicatives are true, now we can receive a command. We can receive some law without condemnation. Because we have a new heart that, that can obey, while at the same time, when we fail and when we make mistakes, we've already been forgiven, we've already been received uh, grace through Jesus Christ, we've already been sanctified. This is how Paul, this is how the whole New Testament operates. If you ever, ever struggle with law versus gospel, and there's these commands in there, but then there's all these, you know, he says we're forgiven, he says we're given grace, what does that mean? This is, this is it's going to give you new eyes to read the Bible when you start understanding indicatives Versus imperatives. Okay? So, in the first ten verses, Paul gives them all indicatives, doesn't tell them one thing to do. Right? And now, because of all of that that God has already accomplished for them, finally, he's going to give them some imperatives. An imperative is is a command. And what's Paul's command for them? Look at verse 10. By the name of our Lord Jesus, that all of you agree. Now listen, the King James gets us closer to the original. It actually says that you say the same things. It literally means, I appeal to you that you all say the same things. That all of you agree in what you say. Paul is telling the Corinthians, you should all be saying the same things and there should not be divisions among you. You should be, and then he goes on to say, you should be united with the same mind and in the same judgment. Other scholars interpret that word judgment as purpose. What? What does Paul mean by all that? Now this is going to get really, this is hard. uh, This is a difficult text to understand. He wants us to say the same things with the same mind and the same purpose. That sounds like he wants a bunch of robots. He wants to kind of just, you know, it's kind of like gentrification. He just wants to bring everybody up to this kind of median level and there's everybody to be exactly the same. But that's not what Paul's saying. Paul is not, listen, Paul is, is calling for unity, not uniformity. Unity, not uniformity. Because we know this because later on Paul's going to like, he's going to, talk to the church. He's like, every single one of you has been given a different spiritual gift. You've all got your own personalities. You've all got your own talents. You got all got your own gifts and nobody's better than anybody else. And you all need to be using your gifts to minister to the body of Christ. So Paul is saying, I want the church has to be diverse. The church needs to be diverse and the church needs that diversity within it to properly represent the kingdom of God. So he's not calling for uniformity. He's calling for something different. And that's unity. And listen, this is the best way I can describe it. Paul is saying a body of believers should be able to sing. I want this church to sing. 
And in order to sing, and to sing well, everyone has to be singing the same words. It's really awkward, right? If Joel's singing one word, Amanda's singing another word, Sam's singing something else, and we just, we were listening to a different song on the radio, so we're just, I'm just going to go with this, right? You're singing Miley or something, and they're singing the Oh Wonderful Cross. That's going to be awkward, right? It's not going to sound good, right? It's not going to sound right. And Paul's saying, the church of Jesus Christ, they should lift up their voices, they should say the same things, and it should sound harmonious, See, what makes a song beautiful to our ears is when everyone is singing the same words in their own parts, right? That's how we get harmony. And harmony is beautiful. Harmony is different sounds, different tones coming together to form harmonious chords that are pleasing to our ears. Now, I'm going to be honest, I don't really know much about that. I can't sing at all, right? I sing and my kids go, you're awful. They literally say that to me, right? I am an awful singer, but I can hear it. I can hear it on some songs that Amanda and Rev, when they're singing, they hit that harmony. Ah, oh, I like that. I like it. Our ears were built to hear that. Our ears were built to kind of respond to harmony, And Paul is saying, the church, the ecclesia, the people of God should be singing and living their life in harmony. Your lives should be ringing out a beautiful melody to those inside and outside the church. So people should come into the body and go, these people in their own personalities, in their own temperaments, in their own proclivities, they're all saying or singing the same thing. It's not uniformity, not like robots. But it's unity. Now, that's not happening in this church. This church in Corinth, each person is being divisive. Each person is choosing teams. Listen, think about this. These these people, they've got jerseys, right? They got signs in their front yard. They got bumper stickers letting everybody know whose team they're on. This church is out of tune and they're all fighting for the microphone. I got Apollos. I got Paul. I got Kephas. I got Jesus, right? You got that guy in the group as well. These factions are kind of people in the church separating around their own personal preferences. Now, before I go any further, I I don't think this should surprise any of us, right? And and I I started out being kind of sarcastic in the beginning about saying, you know, I think we've, we've evolved on from this, but all of us know that we haven't. All of us know that if you work in an office environment, there's office politics. There's people that gather around certain leaders, Right? There's people that backstab others to get ahead. There's all of this uh, politicking in that organization. Right, Best of organizations there is. You, you join a political party. You join a political organization. Same thing. You join a book club. There's going to be arguments and headbutting. Right, No matter what type of organization you join, 
a football team, the military, or a church, I can guarantee you that within that group, there will be division, there will be people butting heads, there will be people seeking their own wills, their own self-interests. Am I right? Why? Well, I'm going to tell you, evolution doesn't answer that for us. Secularism doesn't answer that question for us. Right? That should be something that we're evolving out of if we're working into a more harmonious society. But we're not. Because the Bible, Scripture says that in the beginning, God created man and woman and they rebelled from their creator. And when they rebelled from their creator, sin entered their bloodstream and affected their bodies and then it was going to bring death. And then from then on, every child that has been born of a woman has had sin affecting their bloodstream and all of us, what is that sin? That sin is self-centeredness at the very bottom. At the very bottom of our sin is I want what I want and I, don't, I kind of like my neighbor as long as it's like my will doesn't, you know, our wills don't cross. At the bottom of sin is self-centeredness. What does that mean? That means, this, if I use my same analogy, that means every one of us want to be soloists. We're all self-focused. We care more about our preferences and our opinions than we do about those we are in community with or we're on mission to. That's sin. It's selfishness. Now listen, parents, you're probably doing this. I know my parents did. I think everyone's parents did. You raise your, you know, we raise our kids in the cultural milieu, milieu of, of, of our society. And, and we're all raised believing that we're each unique snowflakes. Mm-hmm. There's not one like you. And I, I was raised, and I know some of you are in racers. There's something special about you. There's something special. You're going to do something great one day. You're going to do something special. And many of us were raised with this nagging thing in the back of your head, like, you're, you're different. You're, you're that one unique snowflake, right? You're going to do something phenomenal. And I remember living my whole life like this. Like, I remember, like, I was not athletic, Okay, I was too small and too wiry or whatever. And I, I remember like pl- throwing the baseball against the house, right? And I'm like catching grounders and I'm like, somebody's going to s- walk by and see me. And they're going to go like, this kid is unbelievable. Let's draft him right now. Right? And the ones that bounced off my leg and hit me in the face, they, didn't, they missed those, right? And then the backyard football, you know, that was a one-handed catch. You're looking around, who saw that? This whole, you had this pressure of there's something special about you. You are meant to be unique. You are meant to be a soloist. You are meant for the world to discover you. And now, listen, here's the deal. None of that is reality. And you get that when you watch American Idol. Some of those people need to be discipled. They need a missional community. They go, brother, listen, I know what your mama told you. She lied to you. You are awful. You might be a unique snowflake, but you need to go work down at the factory and get a jobby job. You can't sing at all. That 
that's a discipleship issue. I, I watch it and that's just painful. After like how many, 400 seasons we've been watching. I just look at it, I'm like, really? And now you can almost see it before they even come in. Oh, that guy's going to be awful. Here it is. Right? But they're convinced, aren't they? They are convinced. They walk out. Their world is collapsing. They are being like, no, no, no. Let me sing one more song. And everybody's like, no. You cannot sing one more song. Like, I get angry. Nobody told you you're awful. You have friends. There's 10 people waiting for you. Are they all tone deaf? Oh, yeah, buddy. Oh, boy, you're going to be the next American Idol. Go ahead. And everybody's looking at him like, no. We need that dose of reality. We all have that pressure upon us that we think something is really special about us and we're all destined to be American idols in some form. Maybe it's an American idol in the business world, creativity, whatever it is. Some, we think that we have, that we have this weight that we're carrying, that we're super special and that we need to be discovered. And many people step into the church and they do the exact same thing with spiritual gifts. Oh, I know, how, you know, I'm, I have the gift of prophecy or I have the gift of speaking or I have the gift of just coming alongside people and just read people really love to listen to me or I love to listen to people. What we, we elevate our gifts. We elevate our preferences. We all think we're something special. Listen, and I'm not saying every person is special in some ways because we've been made in the image of God, right? We've been made imago Dei. But we've all been made imago Dei, right? We've all been made imago Dei. And what Paul's addressing here, and I think it's still in us right now, 2,000 years later, I think, think we all want our gifts and our talents and our preferences to be elevated, I have friends that would rather go to a church that makes them feel good than a church that preaches the Bible. They, have, they would rather go sit under a guy who's got a great smile than feel the weight of conviction or the weight of their sin. To be confronted with reality. And I think we all, we all struggle with that in some form. And now how does Paul address... See. Here's the problem, guys. If sin at its very bottom is self-centeredness, if sin at its very bottom is self-centeredness, then most of us, we want a list to go fix ourselves. But if you focus on yourself to fix yourself, isn't that just being self-centered? See, that's why moralism and legalism sound so good to our ears. You want to be right with God? Read your Bible, pray, go to church, stop cussing, blah, 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 blah. Put it on the list. Well, I can do all that. And we focus on ourself and we think we're be getting closer to God and we think we're being more holy and we think we're being made in the image of God when in reality, we're just becoming more and more and more self-centered and self-focused. So what does Paul do? Look at verse 11. Or actually... So there's quarreling on, look at verse 12. I'm sorry, look at verse 13. 
Here we go. Paul starts off with this great dose of sarcasm. I love it. Is Christ, oh, you're, you're all separated. I follow Paul, I follow Paulus, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Do you see this? Now, this is actually called reductio ad absurdum. It's Latin for a reduction to absurdity. He's using some Greek philosophy on them. He's saying, oh, you say you follow Christ. Well, how could there be factions and cliques among you? Was Jesus split up? Was Jesus divided? Right? He's being sarcastic on them. And then he says this. This is very interesting to me. Paul says this. This is going to show the humility of Paul in his leadership. He says, was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of me? Now listen, this is what leaders do. See, I want to be exalted too. I want to think that I'm a unique snowflake too. I want to think that everybody's here because you're a phenomenal speaker. It's just like Jesus speaking right through you. You're so phenomenal, Justin. Right? I want to believe that. That's my sin. That's my wickedness. That's how gross I am. Right? So I want to believe things like, oh, if I take a week off, then nobody's going to show up. Right? People are just going to stop coming to church, right? God's going to stop speaking. He doesn't use nobody like he uses. That's my sin. So if there's division in the church, what my natural tendency or any human leader's natural tendency to go, uh, oh, you like Dr. Casey, huh? Was Dr. Casey crucified for you? <laughs> right? I want to show the foolishness of those other leaders. Oh, right? But what does Paul do? Paul throws himself on the barbed wire. What? You're divided? I follow Paul. I follow Paul. You didn't get baptized in my name. I don't remember being crucified for you. This church isn't built on me. You're not saved in my name. I can't do nothing for your sins. I'm a sinner. Paul throws himself on the barbed wire, not the other leaders. This should be deeply convicting to us. I know it's convicting to me. So tempting. So easy to build a church on the personality and the styles and the gifts of the leaders. But Paul is telling us, no, no, no. Don't elevate your preferences. Be in harmony with one another by saying the same things, thinking the same things with the same purpose. And again, Paul is not wanting uniformity. He's wanting unity. But how? How do we do that? Let's just be real. How? Listen, you go to the bookstore and you go step into the leadership section. And you look and you look at the management section. You know what management's all about? Management is all about getting people in unity to accomplish a goal. Why is there so many books? Because disunity is the norm. Right? If you don't manage, is that department going to go well? That department is not going to go well. We are bent. We are self-focused. We want our own way. That's why we pay managers a lot of money. Right? So how do we do this? 
The world has self-help books. The world has management books and leadership books. And we can all learn a thing or two from those things. But how does Paul, what's the prescription Paul offers to get us to sing in unity, to get us to sing in harmony? Look at this, verse 17. This is the thrust of his... And actually, we're going to spend the next couple weeks after verse 17. It's going to start his argument. And we're going to spend the next couple weeks kind of dissecting this. This is what he says. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul, first off, we see that open-handed, close-handed. Paul's not minimizing baptism. He's just differentiating the two. He's saying the gospel is what saves you. Baptism is just a response to that. He's showing the Corinthians the priority of the gospel. In actually chapter 15, he's going to say it's a, the gospel is of first importance. But if these Christians right here, listen to this. If these Christians, and if we want our lives to sing out in harmony... If we want to be a good example of what a group of sinners who have been saved by the grace of God look like, that we're going to have to do this right here in verse 17. We're going to have to put the gospel front and center. The gospel is going to have to be what unites us, what keeps us together. It's going to have to be the word that we sing, the word that we, re, we repeat. It's going to have to be the mind that we put on. It's going to have to be the one purpose that we have, the gospel front and center. But I'm going to ask you, how does the gospel, what are you, what are you talking about? How does the gospel cause us to sing in harmony? I said earlier that we all want to be soloists. We all want to be elevated. We all want to be in the spotlight. I've never heard of a person. Hey, what do you want to be, honey, when you grow up? I want to be a background singer. I just look up on stage. And I see that. And I look past that, that girl and I look in the back. I see those ones, you know, way back in the back with no light on them. And I say, that's, that's what I want to be. No. We want our own way over and above our neighbors. That's what causes divisions. But listen, we want to be unique. We want to be the snowflake. We want to be exalted. And what does Paul do? He says it's the gospel. But then he, 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 he zeroes in on an aspect, the foundation of the gospel. And he says this. It's not about words of eloquent wisdom. It's about the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ. What does that mean? Listen, back then in Corinth, society was built on beauty, power, and persuasion. Self-esteem and honor were found in being better than others, being exalted. The Corinthians were allowing these values to creep back into the church, wanting to define themselves over and against each other. It wasn't theological or doctrinal division. It was social. 
And the prescription Paul offers them is the same prescription he offers us when we're being divisive and we have struggles getting along and loving one another. It is the cross of Christ. They were seeking personal prestige and comfort that is oppositional to the message of the cross. I think we forget that the universal symbol of Christianity is a cross. It's not a rainbow. It's not Noah's Ark. It's a cross. Which at this time and day and age was the most gruesome and horrific way to kill criminals. Words were invented excruciating. That word excruciating literally means from the cross. So horrific, so painful, they had to invent a new word for it. For us today in our society, it's like us wearing a little electric chair or a little needle around our neck. A little instrument of death around our neck. That's, it. that's what's, back in the day, that's how offensive the cross was. If you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians 2 real quick. I want, we read it in the profession, but I want to read it again. Actually, we can put it up on screen. You don't need to turn your Bible. Put it up on, on screen. Philippians 2, verse 2. Let's, let's read it. Paul says this, Complete my joy by being of the same mind. Look at that. Of the same mind. Having the same love. Being in full accord and having one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. But look, here it is. Humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves. Look at it. Here's the indicative right here. Which is yours. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Listen, we're going to spend a lot more time on this next week, but Society can say, let's all hold hands and let's all get along. Let's all have one purpose and let's all look for, let's all unite around this thing. Society can do that. They can say that. But listen, and I think you found this to be true. Society can't get deep enough to change our hearts. Society can't get deep enough to actually make that happen. How does the manager motivate? He motivates through your paycheck typically. He motivates the rewards. He can't get deep enough to really change your heart motivation to really want to be united and really want to sing in harmony. But the cross can. Listen, the cross of Jesus Christ can change us. The cross shows us, if we're willing to look at it, the cross shows us that there's absolutely no other way out. There's no other way to fix ourselves. We can't free ourselves from our self-centeredness. We are so broken that the only way we could be saved is by God sending his son to take our place. And that's exactly what Jesus did. And listen, here's, here's the reality. 
Paul says in Galatians 2.20 that I have been crucified with Christ, that I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And now the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's Paul's prescription to divisiveness. That's Paul's prescription for us to live in harmony. Listen, this, listen, this word from a theologian, the word of the cross kills And makes alive. It crucifies the old being in anticipation of the resurrection of the new. Every other religion on the planet says all you need is a little help. All you need is a list of things to do. All you need is just a little bit of encouragement. That's what mama was doing, right? You're a unique snowflake. Just your, if your self-esteem gets to an, uh, the right level, you, you can do anything. Every other religion on the planet says you just need a little bit of help to be good enough. You just need a little bit of help to get to Jesus. You need a little bit of help to cure this brokenness that we have between us and our creator. Christianity is by itself in all the religions of the world. And its prescription is, no, 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 no. The only way to God is for you to die. The only way for you to be humble is to get on a cross with Christ and die. To leave your old desires, your old life behind. But here's the beauty. With death in Christianity, with death comes the resurrection. So we die to our own life. We die to our own preferences. We die to our own dreams. And God resurrects us in Christ. We were crucified with Christ and we're risen with Christ in glory. So he doesn't say be better. He says you have to be new. This led Martin Luther to say, the cross alone is our theology. The cross alone is our theology. That's what unites us. Listen. We're tempted to be united around our favorite songs. We're tempted to be united around our favorite bands, our favorite football teams, our favorite church leaders, our favorite styles and preferences. And the Apostle Paul right here in these seven verses, he's saying the cross alone is what can unite you. The answer to your divisiveness is the cross of Jesus Christ. It's often said that the ground at the foot of the cross is level. Does it matter if you're a millionaire or you got two cents to your name? When you're at the cross, we're the same. You can be a world leader. You can be a king. You can be a genius. But when we come to the cross, it humbles all of us. That's what unites us. That's what humbles us. We all circle up around the cross of Christ and we point and we say, that's why we're here. That's why we're here. Father, would this word of the cross, would that be the word that's on our lips? Would that be the words that we say in unison that would harmonize this body of believers? 
Maybe those who are outside of us today, who are just here visiting and just checking us out. Would something resonate with the word of the cross that it's not about our behavior? It's not about us being better than other people. Father, we actually admit that we're not. That we have to have Christ, his perfect obedience for us, his death in our place on the cross for us. And with that word of the cross, implicit in the word of the cross is resurrection. Would you bring us to new life today? Would you give us new hearts to obey you? Would you give us new eyes to be united together and sing in harmony today? Would you do it for your glory and for our good? It's all about you, Jesus. It's all about your cross and your resurrection and your glory and our salvation. Would we sing out with one voice in harmony? And as we come to the table this morning, that we eat this. And you said every time we eat this meal, every time we take these elements, that we are proclaiming the death of Jesus Christ. That when we take this, we're basically saying, I was so bad, God had to die to save me. But Father, we also get to say, we were so loved that Jesus willingly came That gospel word, that indicative, God died for our sins to make us right with himself. Let that sink down in our hearts. Let it change us from the inside out and let us eat this meal in joy and in worship. At your great name. In Jesus name I pray. Amen.